scripture reading comes from Romans chapter 1, verses 15 through 32. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the, the creator, who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, take us back to your truth, your word. We confess that during the week, even during the day, our hearts turn away from you. Our thoughts become inward. Though we know you are God, and though Christians confess and celebrate you as God, that it's so easy for us to curb away our appeal, our desires, our pursuit to things that are ungodly. And in a world, Lord God, that has not seen and received the gospel, we know, Lord, there's a longing, there's a searching, and there's a confusion as well. And so, God, help your church to be clear with your good news. Help us to convey it to the world. Help us to see your Holy Spirit move through all nations that this 
great story, your story, will become our story. As you sent your son to die for us, to justify us, we pray that, God, that we would come back to that point in our daily life so that we could renew our hearts before you every day. So Holy Spirit, teach us your word this morning and make us see you clearer and clearer each day. For we want to honor you with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The next few weeks we'll be looking at Romans. And as we go to Romans, uh, we're going to start with this discussion of sin. And sin right there, some of you are kind of going, oh, okay. (laughs) We want to hear messages about hope and how God could bless us. We want to learn how to maybe date and have a family that can be just purely just joyous. But when we hear about sin in church, it's like, okay, we're supposed to hear that. We're supposed to know that. And it's not as popular. But as we look at Romans, a key theme in the book of Romans is righteousness. How God gave us righteousness. What does it mean to have faith and righteousness? And to have righteousness, we need to understand unrighteousness. And so a little background story about Romans. Uh, It's written by Apostle Paul, who used to be a Pharisee named Saul. But Jesus Christ took a hold of him, opened his eyes, and, and used him to be one of the greatest messengers to spread this good news. And so Paul longed to go to this church in Rome. And he's been to so many different places, uh, Corinth, Galatia, but he's never been to Rome yet. And he is writing this letter to say, I can't wait to see you. But in Rome, there's a problem. Christians have grown, and the message has already gone there, but the church has become divided. We understand a lot about a divided house in America. But in the Roman church, the division is between two groups of Christians. One is the Jewish Christians, and the other are the Gentile Christians, the non-Jewish Christians. All of them came to faith in Christ. But the Jewish Christians are insisting that the Gentile Christians take on Jewish customs and laws as well. Uh, Case in point, well, kind of similarly to the church in Galatia, and if you read Galatians, that's the same issue and hot topic. So Paul has this dilemma. How do you unify a divided church? I wish we are praying for that question. How do we unify a divided nation? How do we unify a divided society? And the answer to unifying a divided church is the same answer that could unify the world and a nation. And for Paul, he goes back to the basics. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the book of Romans is this unpacking of the gospel by Paul, almost basic step by step. Some of you may know Vince Lombardi. He was a coach for the Green Bay Packers. And when he first got there, before they won a Super Bowl, one of many Super Bowls, he started out with that famous story. He said, professional football players, and everyone come gather here. And he takes a football and goes, we're going to start from the bottom. This is a football. (laughs) And he would go on to lay out the basics of football, even to a point where it's so mundane, but that reinstilling the foundation allowed them to learn and grow to become a powerful football team. And so Paul is doing this with Rome. And he starts out in chapter 1 by talking about the greatness of the good news of Jesus Christ, but we need to go into sin and unrighteousness first. And so in chapter 1, Paul begins with the surprising revelation. And this is, there's two surprises. 
And the surprising revelation is that to the Roman Christians and to us, right now, not later, not, not coming in the future days, the wrath of God is pouring out on us now. Now, that's really kind of jarring. For some of us, we think of wrath of God like a fireball and, and Sodom and Gomorrah. And we also think of a wrath of God to be coming later when Jesus comes and the world ends. But Paul says God's wrath is actually being poured out right now on all humanity. Um, so he goes into detail. In verse 18 through 32, he just, on no host part, talks about it. So let's just kind of skim through. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And Paul goes into detail. What does unrighteousness look like? It's suppressing the truth of God. Even though we can see God, they deny God's existence. It is not honoring God as God and, or giving thanks to him. It is becoming futile in thinking, Having foolish, darkened hearts. That's scary. Your heart becomes numb and dark. You can't discern good and evil. And it's claiming to be wise, but they are fools. And they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. A good summary of that is in verse 25. And the summary is this, Paul says in that section. They exchange the truth about God for a lie and worshiped. And serve the creature rather than the creator. This is very prevalent. We love the things that God created. And we worship it almost. Rather than giving honor to the one who created. So a common one is, you know, we love children. We love our children. But there's a point where they become our lives to a point where God and everything else is secondary compared to our, our children. And so God loves your children more than you do parents. And so by loving God first, we can give children the fullness of God's love. But we cannot worship the created things before the creator. And so Paul continues in verse 26, and, and he talks about sexual sins. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty of their error. He's conveying that one of the ways humanity has fallen away from God is just how we become dysfunctional or we corrupted sexuality. It's a gift from God and, and we have corrupted it. And now Paul gets really deep. In the next few verses, it's about sins that are inside your heart. The sins that are in, consuming us. Verse 29, they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers. And he goes on, they, they disobey parents. It's interesting that that is a mark of ungodliness and unrighteousness. How we treat our parents is, depicts our purity. Though they know God's righteous degree, verse 32, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, Paul's description of unrighteousness here is, if you catch all of that, 
it's more than just a, an act. Like, it's not merely don't sin or you're bad for sinning. This is like that childhood growing up and, and oh, you sinned. But if you read it carefully, here's a simple summary. Our behavior is not what makes us sinners. Put it in another way by an author who we don't know who coined this. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we, at the core of our being, we are sinners. We're just producing the fruit of what's inside of us. And so this is why religion and earning God's favor and becoming good and covering up our, our filth, no matter how polite and gentle and how many charitable works we do, doesn't work. It's, we have a neighborhood cat that comes to our church, our house. And I, I know because I mow the lawn and I see the cat's gift. It always leaves a gift for us every week. It's a nice little smelly gift. And so it's sometimes very smelly. And so just picture this. I tell Kathy, oh my goodness, a cat did it again. And so what if I take a silk handkerchief and I just cover that poop up? Does it make it go away? No, it just covers it up. It's still there. It's not clean and now you've ruined the handkerchief. And so whenever we have this sin nature and we try to cover it up with our goodness, kindness, I just, I just want people to love. I just want to be kind to people. That's all that matters. The problem with that is you haven't dealt with the human nature that's corrupt. And so Paul is saying the takeaway here is no one is innocent. Not one. In fact, between chapters 1 and 2 and 3, this is Paul's, Paul asks that Romans 2.1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself Because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. That's so amazing. Because the the judgment that we see in the Bible is not meant for the church, the pastors, for Christians to use to condemn one another. Why? In Romans 2.1, Paul is saying, you're guilty of the exact same thing. In other words, you have the same potential to do any kind of egregious sin. And then Romans 3.10 and 11, Paul writes... None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. And so this means nobody has moral superiority over anyone else, especially God's children. And I'll tell you why in a second. So, and there's a second surprise that Paul puts in here about this wrath of God. The wrath of God is not like Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, There's some churches in our country that are like, oh, God's throwing this hurricane and this pandemic is the judgment of God. He just hates us for our sins and he's just punishing us. We don't have that conclusive evidence. When you look at Romans 1, the wrath of God is being poured out, but Paul tells us what that looks like. And it's not what we expected. In verses 24, 26, and 28, if you look in your Bible... God's wrath is described in four words, really. You ready for this? God gave them up. God gave them up. God's wrath comes out in the form of God gives them up to whatever they want. I picture 
my children were really good. We didn't have those crazy tantrums in middle of shopping aisles maybe once. But, you know, parents, you get to that point where kids are like, I want donuts, and they cry and they throw a fit. And then what do parents eventually do sometimes? They just, you know, just let them be. <laughs> They're rolling around in the aisle, neighbors walking by. Um, sometimes you just kind of let them be in their misery. And the Greek word for God, give them up, it's literally deliver them. God deliver them. You want it, I'm going to, the wrath comes in the form of, I will let you have what your heart lusts for. And so God gave them up to be delivered to their lusts, to their dishonorable passions. God delivered them over. This, the wrath of God is to let them be immersed in this sin to be debased mind. And so here's a huge point. Just because we see sin in our society and it's possible does not mean that God has endorsed it. In fact, we see God delivering, letting people have what their heart aches for. And so C.S. Lewis says that everyone who's in hell, it's not because God threw them in hell. They got what they chose. They desired what they wanted. And when they got it, it was not all that they hoped it would be. You hear of athletes, they win the Super Bowl or they get the gold medal. And story after story, they finally reach that pinnacle and they realize the emptiness of their life is still there. Because our, we were made to glorify God. And to have everything else but God to be our treasure, that is a form of hell and God's wrath. And so living in that sin is this wrath of God. I'll give you some examples. Let's say a married couple, husband or wife, one of them just, just falls deep into sexual sin. And they are, they, are, they are trapped in this misery of sexual practices outside of marriage. What does hell look like? To have what they want, they finally get it. And they ruin their life, their family, their children, their relationships, maybe their career. Another example is somebody who is narcissistic and the world's all about me and me and me. What happens to that person who aches and lives this life for themselves? They get exactly what they want and they have pure emptiness. Proverbs talks about this in fourteen twelve. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. That's hell. To have everything but God and still feel this misery. To think that this will make me happy. My way is going to give me this joy and freedom. And God gives us over to that. That's the wrath of God. So Paul's message to the Roman Christians is this. He goes in. This is the reason why in the gospel, with sin as a huge problem that we all have, Jews or Gentiles, feeling morally superior over one another has no place amongst believers. Let me say that again. Feeling morally superior over anyone else has no place. We just finished the Democratic National Convention, the Republican National Convention, and all the pundits and news is coming out, and they're saying, oh, who did a better job? Who's better? And, and the speeches are like, we're so much better than them. And they have to do that. That's politics. They have to win the votes. But what the concern is in our society, we genuinely believe in moral superiority over someone else. Let me start with Christians first. Come on. If we are honest, we are one of the worst 
at doing, feeling morally superior. So the way it looks in our society is, I'm a Christian, I go to church every Sunday, and I read the Bible. Those pagans who don't worship God, those irreligious atheists, oh boy. And so what is that? It's an hypocrisy. It's feeling morally superior based on my status. But we live in a strange time because it's flipped. In our society now, if you're not religious, there's actually this aura of superiority. I am so advanced. I am so sophisticated and wise. Why? Because I don't believe in this religious junk. Those, those church-going fanatics, they don't know what the real deal is. I know. And so what is that? There's a moral superiority against religious folks. And so when we look at Romans 1 and you see the list of sin, the point of it is nobody is unscathed. We're, no one could look at that list and say, Whew, I dodged a big bullet on that one. Paul's point is we are all guilty of sin. The gospel starts with this realization, God is holy and we are not. And so Paul says in Romans 2, verse 3 and 4, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So when you condemn others, but you do that yourself, what is that? It's called hypocrisy. And Paul says, you're not going to escape the judgment of God. Everyone is morally deficient before God. And so one of the famous verses in Romans three twenty-three is this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Just, just take a pause. We're so frustrated by people. We get so easily angered and irritated. But how does this verse speak to that? For all have fallen short of the glory of God. It humbles us. It brings us to this level, not of superiority, not condescension, but this brokenness. And so Paul's second implicit point here is this, that we can never become comfortable with our sin. Verse 32, Paul says this, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but look at this, they not only do them, but they start giving approval to those who practice them. So societies that embrace sin and say, you know what, we all do it. It's kind of the thing now. We're modern. What happens is they not only get numb to the wrath of God in that sin, we start celebrating it and encouraging it in the next generation. So how do we turn this over to God? How do we deal with this? We're going to talk more about this in the next few chapters of Romans. But if this is a sin problem that we have and Paul is just nailing it and exposing it, I think Augustine gives us a special insight. And Augustine, St. Augustine, wrote this, The confession of evil works is the first beginning of good works. The confession of evil works is the first beginning of capital G, good work. It begins by confessing our sins before God. We don't do that a lot. And to be honest, um, our church hasn't done it a lot. And I think there's a reason and a need for the spiritual practice to come back in churches. And so I started to realize that God has uh, convicted me of this. 
We need to be a church that regularly confesses sin. Why? To feel bad about ourselves? No, it's actually to feel guilt. Because if we feel guilt of sin and we see the goodness of God and his mercy, what does that do? Guilt drives us to grace. Amazing grace. And so it begins by confessing to the Heavenly Father. And confessing sin is powerful. Just think about this with me. When you confess your sins, it breaks up that tension. So, for example, on our honeymoon in 19 years ago, um, I, I was, I, we met an old couple in Hawaii, and they, they were like, oh, we were married for 50 years. And Kathy and I said, well, we were just married. And I asked the man, hey, what's the secret? What's the secret to 50 years of happy marriage? And he goes, two words. <laughs> I'm sorry. He says, just say that regularly, and you'll be fine. And it's true. It's a confession of sin. My sin. And so when we confess sins to God, it does a few things. Just a few. I'll list some. One, it removes this grip that sin has on you. That secret hold. That, that, and it makes you feel vulnerable, embarrassed, exposed. But that's how restoration begins. Confessing also... When you confess sin, you're saying to God, I am relying not on myself, but on you and the promise in Jesus Christ. And all of that means confessing humbles us. So Paul invi- God invites us to humble ourselves and confess, but some people don't. In Isaiah 30, 15, Israel was invited to confess their sin. And God says, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. You are unwilling to own up to your rebellion and sin. So in worship, we're going to confess our sins. But I want to do it because there's a purpose for it. To humble us. To make sure we're not morally superior. And to drive us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans three twenty three. I just read. But I want to continue reading. The next line says this. Romans three twenty three. For, there, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There's the gospel. That we are condemned in our sin, but there is hope and good news in our confession, in our turning to God, the grace and the redemption. And so 1 John 1, 9 tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confessing sin does two things. For the unbeliever, it's a first-time acknowledgement. There is a God, and I am far away. But for the believer, we confess sins for a different reason. We've been forgiven already. So why do we forgive? We ask for forgiveness because God has forgiven us in Christ. It is a word of grace makes us seek this assurance of pardon. So as I end, I just want to share this. Can you imagine what it would look like if the leaders of our country, if the racism, if the social injustice, if the powers of this country confessed our sins regularly to God, not defend ourselves, not to rationalize it away, but to confess humbly before God you know there would be revival. 
We can't make them do that. But what we can do today is we could start with our own heart. We could confess our sins. We could turn to the gospel for life and let his grace flow over. Let's pray. Lord, in a moment, we're going to say this prayer together. And we acknowledge, Lord God, that we are far from ever being perfect. And we're not saved because we figured it out and we went to church and we earned this. And so, God, help us say these words with humility, with honesty, as a corporate prayer. So that we could receive the assurance of pardon that is in Christ with just delight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.